Would you walk across another country, setting each foot before the other, day after day, outrunning your shadow into a westering sun? Would you cross a mountain range, and then pass other peaks one after another, until you reach a high plateau, and then keep walking? Would you still go on until, at last, your sun sets in an endless ocean, and you can walk no more? Would you do this in the latter half of life? Would you take a chance that some illness not so long ago conquered might return at the most unwelcome moment? Would you risk the chance of injury and find yourself at the side of the road nursing a blister or a tendon? And would you go on despite the pain? Would you do this in a country where you do not speak the language, knowing you might lose your way and not knowing where you might spend each night? Do you hesitate? Consider that your days might be a little closer to nature than what you now know. You might start your day with the Chanticleer's cry, and your path might cross the path of stately cows, a gentlemanly bull, more sheep than you can count, and a horse whose ancestor carried Coronado on his search for cities of gold. Birds, too, will keep you company, impertinent magpies, storks nesting in their church towers, and high above, vultures, on the watch for death. And there will be other pilgrims, too, sharing the same adventure on the road to Santiago, walking the same way that millions have walked before you for a thousand years and more. And as you walk with them, you will share each other's stories, as pilgrims always do. Yes, you just might do it, and you might find yourself a somewhat altered person at the end of the long, long road. First steps. There are many ways to measure the passing of time, and so we speak of days and years and seasons past, and mark each equinox and solstice in succession. But when we break the rhythm of our days, when we have an adventure, we can look back and say to our secret hearts, that was the time we went on a journey, or we saw a great city for the first time, or met a once-in-a-lifetime friend. Or perhaps our first child was born, or a heart was won or lost. Whenever we step outside the ambit of our everyday lives, we have these adventures, and they are the true measure of our lives. Some of our greatest adventures, the adventures of the heart, may happen wherever we may be, right in our workplace, our hometown, our own backyard. Or our adventure may take us to a wholly new experience with new people in a new place, and there is no need to face great danger. We need no vast mountain peak, no frigid waste, no storm-tossed voyage in a frail craft. No, our adventure may simply be anything we've never done before, perhaps something as straightforward as a long, long walk across a new and unknown land. Long ago, I fell into the habit of walking at least an hour or so each day, and even farther as the years passed, for this proved a way to fend off the withering of age, the atrophy of mind and muscle, and it heartened me for the last passage when we need all the strength we can gather. My walking is contemplative. It smooths out the jagged edges of a stressful life and calms the spirit distracted in recent years by the shadow of mortality. Knowing something of the Middle Ages, I was familiar with the great pilgrimages walked by Christians in those distant centuries, Jerusalem, Rome, and Santiago de Compostela, as well as countless other shrines and destinations in Europe. 
And when I learned that the road to Santiago was still a viable pilgrim road, indeed, many thousands of people walked some part of this road every year, I resolved to do it. Starting in France, I would cross the Pyrenees and walk to Santiago. This would be my next adventure. But could I do this thing? Walk hundreds of miles across northern Spain with nothing more than what I could carry, covering as much as 20 miles each day, or even more. Gibbon tells us this was the daily distance of a Roman legion on the march, and I would carry nothing like their load. I was in my 64th year, far past the age of a Roman soldier, but I told myself I could do it. That was four years ago, and so far I've done it three times. The Camino winds its way across 2,000 years of history and a great theater of religious war. It starts in France, where sectarian conflicts began as far back as the Albigensian Crusade, and even before then to the earliest age of the Christian faith. The road continues across the mountains into the Iberian Peninsula, where Christianity faced Islam in a centuries-long struggle. And then the road passes through a land where diaspora Jews found a home and prospered for centuries, until 1492, when they were compelled to choose between expulsion from Spain or conversion to Christianity. In recent centuries, the choice has been between revolution and reaction, and whether it was the Peninsula War of Napoleon's time or the years of violence that ended the Republic and brought Franco to power in 1939, faith and death have always shared the same stage, each playing its part. I am not in any conventional sense a religious person, but very often my thoughts and imagination turn to religion as I walked the Camino, especially when I passed through the larger towns along the way and saw the great cathedrals of Pamplona, Burgos, León, and Santiago de Compostela. But also when I looked on the rustic beauty of the ancient churches in small villages like Torres del Rio, Grañón, and Rabanal del Camino, whether grandiose and magnificent, or small and intimate, they were all monuments to faith, the creations of people committed to serving their God, and I did not need a state of grace to sense the wondrous achievement of their art. But anyone's experience of the Camino will also encompass the other people doing the same extraordinary thing, and I learned this before I took the first step. On the way to the place where I would begin my first journey, I had an hour and more to wait in the airport in Paris. Two women traveling together noticed my backpack and asked where I was going, and it turned out they too were on their way to Santiago. But their journey began in South Africa, much farther away than Seattle, and striking proof of the wide appeal of this journey. They would walk the last 200 kilometers of the Camino, starting in Ponferrada. They could only take two weeks away from their families, but it was important to do this now, for they were the closest of friends, and one of them had survived cancer, and now saw life a little differently, and wanted to mark a new beginning. These were the first of many pilgrims I met. Some people were the briefest acquaintances, and others I came to know far better, hearing their stories as we walked along, sometimes meeting more than once farther down the road. And there were a few who became friends, staying in touch long after the experience. I wanted to write about the people I met along the way because so many of them gave me such vivid memories. And indeed, I sought out other pilgrims simply from a genuine interest 
in knowing other people drawn to this journey. Also, quite frankly, I wanted to avoid the possibility of my long walk becoming only about myself, a solipsistic inward journey. And so I wrote about these other pilgrims, whose stories were far more interesting than my own. And along the way, their stories became part of mine. For the most part, the essays gathered here were written in the moment, every few days, at the end of the day, as I reflected on what I had seen and heard, for I wanted to capture the immediacy of it all, even if I ended the day sluggish with fatigue. A few essays were written afterwards as I thought about the experience with the perspective of time. The people I met came from many countries, not only from across Europe, but also from Asia, Africa, Australia, and the Americas. They all had their reasons for making this journey, a spectrum of reasons, but they had this commonality. They all stepped outside their everyday lives. They all spoke to their secret hearts as they walked along the road. And they were all on a great adventure. Val Carlos. From Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, in the far south of France, there are two ways across the Pyrenees, and both we call invasion. One is Napoleon's route, and the other is the Val Carlos road. And in this instance, Carlos means Charlemagne, whose army came this way in the 8th century to battle with Islam and when the opportunity arose, steal whatever treasure they found in their path. Some decades before, Islam had come to Spain in the person of the Moors, and it may be noted that they too, like Charlemagne, were very far from home. The Basque people who live in these mountains had no use for either. Saint-Jean-Pierre-de-Port is well known as the starting point on the Camino de Santiago, the pilgrim's road to the great cathedral of St. James in the far northwest of Spain. In Saint-Jean, there is an office where pilgrims may go to pick up the credencial, a passport that allows one to stay at any of the many pilgrim hostels along the way. My younger son David is with me, for he decided months ago that he would take leave from his military service and join me for the first week of my journey and see me safely over the mountains and on my way. Together we get our pilgrim passports and have them stamped, the first of many stamps that prove we have passed through the towns along the Camino. We are greeted by two gentlewomen, well into their seventies, who have done the journey themselves, and they answer questions and give advice. They tell us most emphatically that we must not take Napoleon's way, that we must take the Val Carlos road. For the police say that even now, in late April, Napoleon's way is blocked with snow and far too dangerous. And the women add that just last month a pilgrim from Brazil tried this snowbound way, could not see the way markings, lost the path, and fell to his death. I hear their words and note the sad, anxious tone of voice, an elderly woman's solicitude for a younger person about to take an ill-advised risk. For so long I have daydreamed of this journey, and I have always wanted to take Napoleon's way across the Pyrenees. And so, despite this warning, my first reaction is that we should do as I have long planned. But Dave asks more questions, goes into more detail, and then he insists we must go by the safer road. And after some thought I agree, for I know I am imprudent in so many things, and have so very often misled myself. And besides, I'm happy to admit both my sons are wiser than I. And so, early in the morning, 
we pass through the Spanish Gate and out of this ancient citadel and take Charlemagne's road. But still my thoughts wander off to Napoleon's soldiers and the terrible fate they met. My thoughts go back to 1808, when an army of 25,000, many of them young recruits from the Bordeaux region, crossed these mountains to invade Spain. All these men came to regret it, and very few ever made it home. Imagine with me, if you will, that we live in Bordeaux in 1808, and we know a young man in his teens, hardly more than a child. He has the vigor and strength of a Gironde farm boy, or perhaps he's a tough young fellow from the streets of Bordeaux. The discerning eye of the recruiting sergeant sees the soldier within, and the sergeant knows that if this young man is strong enough to work the plow horse or press the grapes at harvest time, or if he has the strength to manhandle the great wine casks, then surely he is strong enough to shoulder a musket for his emperor, and tough enough so that he will not hesitate to use the bayonet. The sergeant speaks to the young man, promises adventure, glory, easy plunder on the battlefield, and he whispers of the sweet secrets of the Spanish girls across the mountains, all of them waiting for the strong young Frenchman in his handsome uniform. And, of course, the boy does not see himself as a boy at all. Surely he is a man, yes? Just as the sergeant says. And he's going on a great adventure. He will do great deeds and show his courage in battle and make his family proud and his stay-at-home friends envious. And he, when he will come home from Spain with a scar or two, but nothing more, and once he is back home, the young women will look at him in another way and yield themselves in secret, and the village priest will never know. But his old father knows only his memories, and so he still sees the young boy, the child so close to his heart. A young man now, but surely still a boy, yes? And a boy should stay at home forever and give comfort to his father's final years. And of course the father knows that the sergeant's words are all lies. No, the father sees it all differently. He sees his son in his new uniform and feels not pride but fear. And before the young soldier marches off with his regiment of the line, the heart-stricken father gives the boy a final ferocious embrace, a rough whiskered kiss on his cheek, and whispers fiercely, Come home! So what became of our boy? How did our young soldier meet death? Did he meet his end in one of Wellington's vast slaughters at Talavera or Salamanca or Vitoria? Or did the boy die in the little war, La Garilla? Was it an ambush or a sniper's ball or the swift and silent midnight knife? And in the last moment, as his life bled away, did he cry out, Mon Père! And far to the north, did his father wake in the night in fear, knowing something was terribly wrong? Did he suddenly know what he wished never to know, what no father should ever know. And in the moment of knowing, did he cry out, Mon fils! But these are the thoughts of a father whose son goes off to a faraway war, whether it be Spain or Afghanistan. And for a time they were my thoughts. But now that time has gone, flowed away, faded into the past, and now in this moment my son, Mon fils, leads me up this mountain, in the far south of France. He leads me into Spain. He leads me with his long, strong strides. And he leads me in the path of Charlemagne.